way I would put it is that there are some things that a government could do better than the alternatives, but that I know of no way of setting up a government which will do only those things and do them in the way it ought to do and not do other and worse things as well. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 160. And this episode is with David Friedman, who's Professor Emeritus at the Santa Clara University School of Law. And while David was trained as a physicist, perhaps this was inevitable because his father was the esteemed Nobel laureate uh, Milton Friedman. David has become an economist and is best known for his work in economics and particularly his defense of anarcho-capitalism, which is, I suppose it's an, I don't know how I should be classifying it as an economic theory of some sort or a political philosophy, but I think I'll stick with the political philosophy that advocates for a sort of a free market economy that is unhampered by government or governmental influence. And in this episode, that is pretty much all that we discuss. We get into some criticisms of current economic systems, the variety of anarchism, the arguments for anarcho-capitalism, uh, some potential criticisms or problems. Like I, I don't really see how less government is going to help solve problems like climate change. Uh, and then we also talk about one of David's very fascinating hobbies, which is called anachronism, and which I had never heard of before talking with David about it. So that's at the end of the episode and very exciting. So you should also check out David's website, which is daviddfriedman.com, his substack, which you can also find there, and then the Machinery of Freedom, Guide to a Radical Capitalism, which is his book that goes over everything anarcho-capitalism and has gone through multiple uh, multiple versions at this point. So likes, comments, subscribes, reviews, follows. Love them all. Can't get too many of them all. Keep them coming. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with David. I'd like to spend the bulk of our time today talking about your current views, but I think the best way to introduce them is probably by starting with what or where they came from. And I know that you weren't officially trained as an economist, but as a physicist, yet, yet your father was the renowned economist Milton Friedman. And I'm wondering if whether you emerged from under his wing as a proponent of the free market or like other children, you began rebellious and maybe your first foray into no, economics. I wasn't particularly was a... rebellious. I eventually okay. concluded that he was a little bit of a socialist, that he wanted a little bit more government than I did. But no, I would say that uh, on the whole, I mostly uh, agree with my father's views and I did not, I never studied economics. That is, I never took an economics course for credit, but of course we talked economics. I mean, I think I can claim to have invented consumer surplus, for example, probably when I was in high school, maybe 
maybe college in the sense of seeing the idea uh, of it. And I, at one point, a good deal later, pointed out to my father, he's got a very, very clever article on the optimal quantity of money. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it shows that there is a sense in which you really want declining price level. Uh, Maybe you're not. I Apparently, it's a fairly well-known article, which I didn't realize, so I looked it up a couple of days ago. Uh, but the argument is that the private cost of holding money is the interest rate. The social cost of holding money is close to zero because the law of large numbers averages people's the variations in, in people's desired wealth hold, holdings out. And in order to equilibrate the social and the private costs of holding money, you need to have an interest rate close to zero, a nominal interest rate close to zero, uh, which you get by having prices declining at the real interest rate. And I pointed out to my father that that was precisely the result you would get in a competitive free banking system with competitive uh, fractional reserve banks, all of which held fractions very close to zero. Uh, and if you assume that, they're, that you can ignore their actual operating costs. Uh, so that was an economic insight, as you like, probably made before I was nominally an economist. I don't I can't time it very accurately. Uh, but no, I, I think the main place where there was, in a sense, a conflict, but it was with my views as well as my father's, was on the question of whether governments had any rights. That on the one hand, I felt, as I think my father felt, that although the market is a wonderful system, it has to have a framework of enforced law to operate within, and that has to be produced from the outside, as it were. And I eventually conclude that that wasn't true, that you could plausibly imagine institutions in which the framework was itself endogenous. Uh, and I discovered much later that not only could you plausibly imagine them, there have been a variety of historical societies in which the legal system was not provided by the state. Uh, so in that sense, I, I sometimes claim that when I did the work that led to my most recent book, I discovered that in my first book, I had been reinventing the wheel. Uh, that I had been imagining a modern society version of something which had existed in much more primitive societies in the past. So it sounds like if you were having some of these conversations in high school, you were a, a very precocious teenager and economist. I went but, to Harvard when I was 16. Okay. Yeah, very precocious young person then. <laughs> so your differences with your father then were less about whether markets ought to be free, but the other roles and rights that government may or should the, not the, have. The difference eventually, initially, my I agreed with his position, but I wasn't very happy with it because it seemed to me on the one, one way of putting it is, are you obliged to obey laws? And on the one hand, I thought that if people did not feel obliged to obey laws, you couldn't have enough police to enforce everything and the society would break down. On the other hand, it did not seem to me that right and wrong were made by act of Congress. So I didn't see why the government making something a law had a moral effect. Uh, and my decision, I think at the point I went to college roughly, was that I would act as if one was obeyed, obliged to obey laws until I had a satisfactory solution to the problem, because it might be true. And that, that failing to do things you have a right to do is not an uh, immoral act, whereas doing things you don't have a right to do is an immoral act. So I could, 
And I eventually noticed that other people did not act as if they believed they were obeyed, obey, obliged to obey laws, that people routinely offered, uh, you know, a glass of wine or a beer to a friend who was a year below the legal age. People routinely drive a bit over the speed limit and so forth. And so I concluded that I had been wrong, that what you need for a society to work is some combination of enough law enforcement to prevent some crimes and enough general agreement about what things people ought to do so that people don't go around doing things that would require a huge number of police to stop them. Uh, and at that point, I concluded, therefore, that I was at that point a, an anarchist in terms of moral philosophy. That is, I didn't think the government had rights. That didn't answer the question of whether or not you needed a government, though. It might be that that even though you're not obliged to obey it, if there isn't a government collecting taxes and paying for police and so forth, the society will collapse, which many people believe. And I think my father's view is that that was probably the case. And my eventual view was that it was probably not the case, but it could be. I, I, I have never claimed that I can prove that a market anarchy would work under all circumstances. Uh, I only claim to have plausible arguments for why under many circumstances it would work and be attractive. You've said uh, many things that I'd like to get to in more detail. One of the things you said is that right and wrong were not made by acts of Congress. And I would really like to better understand, I guess, your meta-ethical position. So where right and wrong do come from then, since that is going to be very important. But I would like to start by just getting some terminology on the table first, since for many of our listeners, uh, they will have never heard the term anarcho-capitalism before. And since you're a self-styled anarchist economist, I think we should start with anarchist. And most people associate the word anarchy with chaos or today maybe with Antifa, but that's pretty far from where you fall on the landscape. So maybe we should just start with how you think of this anarchist landscape and where the anarchist in your title places you. What I mean by an anarchist is somebody who believe, who is in favor of a society which has no government. And then the question that that raises is how do you define a government? That if you think about it, I don't believe there is any activity governments engage in that has not at some time and place been engaged in by non-government, by things we don't think of as governments. So my standard example is making war, that the uh, Norse armies that ravaged Anglo-Saxon England, as best I can tell, were entrepreneurial projects. That is to say, some leader with a good reputation said, hey, let's get a whole bunch of people and go raid England and we can get gold and get them to pay, off, pay us off to go away and maybe we'll grab some land and so forth. So that's what we think of as a government activity, but it was being done privately. And I think, I, as far as I can tell, maybe I'm missing something, but I think that's true of all government activities. So to me, at least, the defining feature is what in my first book I defined as an agency of legitimized coercion. And I went into that in much more detail in a much later article and then a chapter in my third edition of that book, where the idea is that in a functioning society, well, let me go back a step. Let me go back before humans. Uh, territorial behavior in animals is a pattern you observe in a fair number of different species, mostly birds and fishes, but some mammals too. And territorial behavior consists of an animal somehow marking the territory he is claiming. And then, uh, as it were, turning a switch in his brain 
so that if another member of his species and gender trespasses on that territory, he will fight and will fight more desperately the farther in the trespasser comes. Most of the time, a fight to the death is a loss for both parties, unless there's a very large inequality of force. Therefore, once the trespasser recognizes the commitment, it pays him to back off. Uh, for economists, this is sort of an animal version of the problem of bilateral monopoly, where in bilateral monopoly, where I have an apple and you want an apple and you're the only person in the world who values apples and I don't care about apples that's worth nothing to me, it's worth $10 to you, if I could somehow commit myself not to accept any price other than nine fifty, you'd pay it. But if you could commit yourself not to pay more than 50 cents, I'd accept it. Well, this is an animal version of that. And then my view is that the way a functioning society works is that human beings have the equivalent of that, of the territorial behavior of commitment, but it's not necessarily in geography, that we have a set of mental lines of what are the things that if somebody does them to me, I will be willing to bear what seem like unreasonably large costs to stop him. Uh, so my sort of standard example for that is uh, somebody grabs a kid's toy that your kid is playing with and runs off down the street and you run after him yelling, stop thief. The toy cost you $3. The chance of tripping and hurting yourself by more than $3 is high. Uh, the chance that you fight him of getting more than $3 is damage is high. So you're willing to, in effect, bear a cost much lower, much more than $3 to enforce your view that that toy belongs to you and the kid. On the other hand, when the government tells you, by the way, you're going to be on a jury next week, which is exactly the same sort of thing. It's like somebody enslaving you. You don't react that way. You say, well, you know, if I can avoid the jury at a reasonable cost, I'll avoid the jury. But if it requires really large efforts to me, I'll put up with it. So I think of the government as an agency against which people drop the commitment strategies that normally enforce their view of, of their rights, of what they're entitled to do. And the claim, from my standpoint, the claim of anarchy is you do not have to have an institution of that sort in order for society to work. Uh, now, in terms of different kinds of anarchists, the obvious difference is going to be in what they imagine the, how they imagine the society works, what substitutes you have for the things that governments in the societies were used to do. And a anarcho-capitalist is somebody who, imag who imagines a society where the basic coordination mechanism is voluntary exchange, it is market kind of transactions. And that includes, from my standpoint, if three people get together and decide to do something together because they're all in favor of it, that's still a voluntary transaction, even though there's no payment. So it's not a market in the, in the normal sense. Uh, and indeed, from my standpoint, a workers co-op is consistent with anarcho-capitalism as long as it's voluntarily formed, does not seize stuff from other people and so forth, that it's uh, just one, just a particular form of corporation, as it were. Uh, but there are other anarchists. Uh, there are anarcho-communists who, as best I can tell, imagine a society with no property rights or maybe at least no property rights in means of production, maybe no property rights at all. There are syndicalists who think they're anarchists, although it's not clear to me that what they're imagining is syndicates that control things aren't really governments. But I'd have to understand their views better than I do to be sure of that. Uh, but I think in, in modern day America, that quite a lot, 
of the small number of people who call themselves anarchists, I think quite a lot of them are anarcho-capitalists, that it's a fairly well-recognized libertarian faction and has been for decades. Uh, although there are certainly other people who call themselves anarchists who are nothing at all like that. I think the the place to dig in before we move on is to the definition of government as an agency of legitimized coercion. And I was trying to think of a, a counterexample. So, but first, let me make that, make it clear that legitimized does not mean legitimate, right? And coercion right. is not a statement about my moral system. Coercion means those things that would be treated as coercion by the people who the government's doing them to, and legitimize means they don't react in the way you normally react to somebody coercing you. Now go continue. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll get, I'll get back to that in one second. So I was thinking about a counter example. So a government that isn't this or a, or something that's non-governmental that also has this quality that it's the agency of legit, legitimized coercion, but nothing immediately came to mind. So I just wanted to ask further what is coercion? Is that a monopoly of force? No, and coer then... coercion. In I tried to make it clear in, in the first edition of Machinery that I was using both legitimized and coercion as specialized meanings. And I understood that better by the third edition, but I think I basically intuited at, at the beginning that coercion is doing things which would be treated as rights violations to be resisted if they were done by somebody other than the government. And I could imagine, look, let, let's take the, the, this recent case in Spain where, uh, somebody who was in charge of running women's hockey or something, some women's sport kissed, uh, the star woman player and people objected. Uh, one can easily enough imagine a society, one society where in which that, in which the normal reaction of the woman to that would be, oh, great, you know, he said he, he likes me, uh, we're, we're all happy because we just won this game and so forth. And a different society in which your reaction would be to slap him or to scream or to do. <clears throat> so what things, where people draw the lines are going to vary. Look, the very simplest thing you can see that in is how close people stand to each other. That's something that varies with cultures. And at some point, if somebody literally gets in your face, in the literal sense of that, you know, his nose is an inch from your nose, you're going to start feeling as though he's pushing you around and you should be willing to bear costs to stop him. Some other society, you might not. So I'm not, you, I'm not, I have moral categories. That is some of the things, there, there might well be things that would be coercion in that sense that I don't really think are coercive uh, and vice versa. Uh, but my my basic point is, is only that for the purpose of defining government, what matters is what are the things people are committed to resist, as it were, not what are the things that are morally wrong. Mm -hmm. So Apple can't tax me or imprison me or in other ways infringe on my rights. And it is in that for that reason that it doesn't have it's not this agency of coercion. And then can we further spell out what makes... But, but if, it, Apple, if Apple raises the price of a Macintosh, you don't feel obliged to do very strong things to get them. You could imagine somebody who believed in the idea of a just price and who said, look, you've been selling the, uh, the, the, this nice uh, Macintosh uh, for $1,000. This year you've raised it to 1100 That's wicked. 
You're not allowed to do it. Even though it's worth $1,100 to me, I won't buy it. That's not an impossible view. Some people do have sort of emotional responses of that sort, though I think they're hard to justify. So in that case, raising the price would be uh, from his standpoint coercion. And then he would say, all right, if the government, if, if people let government do it, uh, oh, but it's not legitimized because he's, he's, he, he is resisting by not buying the, the computer. Uh, but if you said, all right, uh, nonetheless, you have to buy it. At that point, government, Apple would be a government because, and even if, if you said, if you think about things like, uh, eminent domain, where the government forces a sale at, at, at what it thinks is the legitimate price. Well, you could imagine doing the same thing with a purchase. Suppose Apple says, look, it's true we've raised the price of this uh, computer by a by $100, but look, here are the reasons that we're justified in doing that. Therefore, you're refusing to buy it as unjustified, therefore you have to buy it. Right? Some somewhat odd legal rule, but you could certainly imagine that. and and. In a sense, there's a sense in which you have that in uh, employment non-discrimination laws. That is to say, those laws in effect say, if the reason you didn't hire this person was a bad reason because you're prejudiced against his race, you have to hire him or we'll penalize you for not doing it. So that's a case uh, where you do have, as it were, the equivalent of a forced sale. Uh, anyway, but enough. I've made my, I think I made the point. I did want to move on to now that we've clarified coercion, I wanted to just clarify your technical meaning of legitimized. So the fact that government is an agency of coercion and it's legitimized means that it's socially or tacitly or systemically accepted or how do you um, uh, accepted in terms of behavior, not necessarily of beliefs that even even an anarchist who may say the government collecting taxes from me or the government putting that jury is wrong. It's a violation of my rights. But he nonetheless does not in fact resist it. At least most of them don't. And therefore he is not treating it uh, when, so, so he's therefore, it is legitimized to him in the sense that it doesn't trigger the kind of reactions that rights violations normally trigger. And there could be many different reasons by that. So for that, so one could be it could be legitimized by the threat of force. That might it be could, one reason. That's right. Out. That, but on the other hand, I wouldn't consider something a gun. If a mugger uh, points a gun at me, and I don't fight him, it's not that it's legitimized. I'd be perfectly willing to fight him if I thought I had a good chance of winning. It's just that that the claim. What, what makes, what, what defines it as coercion is that I'm willing to take on reasonably high costs, not infinite costs in order to act against it. So, uh, the, the, if, if the only reason that I, uh, go along with government, uh, if when the government taxes me, I do, I do nothing to stop it. And the reason I have nothing to stop it is anything I could stop it will get me locked up in jail. That's not legitimized coercion. That's just successful extortion. Uh, but if, as I think is the case, somebody would say, well, look, there are things I could do to fight it. I could lie on my taxes. Uh, you know, I, 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 I could leave the country. Uh, I could do various things. If, if it was easy enough, I would do them. 
but if they impose any serious cost to me, I won't do them. Uh, in that case, uh, he's treating it as a government, as a legitimized. So we're going to get to the specifics and some of the applications, possible criticisms, all of these things. But I think that this is very good to lay out at the beginning what this terminology means. So the anarchic portion of your philosophy is that there is or no body should have should be this agency of legitimized coercion. And that handles the anarcho portion of your title. And the second part is capitalist. So how does that fit in? That means that the way the society coordinates is private property and voluntary exchange, uh, as opposed to uh, a society where anybody can take anything they want from anybody else. And the reason you believe it coordinates is because people will be good and kind and do things for each other and so forth. That would be a very different kind of society. But they feel entitled to use force if they if you don't. Uh, so. Uh, I think from my standpoint, that's why you would call it, you know, people, some people sometimes call it market anarchy or, you know, there are a variety of other terms for people who don't like the term capitalist. Uh, I think the term capitalist may have been invented by socialists. I'm not sure, uh, but it's often used by people who don't like it. That is true. It definitely has pejorative connotations. And this is just a, a minor point before we move on, but is this all just another way of saying that you're a libertarian or where is the line that distinguishes these positions? Maybe libertarians simply still want a minimal government. That depends on the libertarian. I would say that liberta libertarian is not a very sharply defined category. And I would say that a libertarian is somebody who would like a society with a lot of individual liberty. And that includes people who would say, well, it would be nice if we could do it without government entirely, but we can't. If we don't have a government, we'll have rights violations by private people. Uh, and therefore, I'm in favor of a minimum government. That's probably a majority of libertarians hold that position and have for a long time. But it also includes people who take it a little bit further and say we can do with no government at all. But of course, even in an anarcho-capitalist society, you don't have zero coercion. There will be, you know, some successful thieves and muggers and so forth. And almost any society, you're not going to get zero uh, rights violation. Uh, so, but again, I, as I was suggesting before, I think that in defining anarchist, there's a useful distinction between a moral position and an economic position. That is, one could hold that Morally, the government has no right, but in fact, we're better off if we have a government or at least a minimal government, because after all, the muggers have no rights either. And hopefully a government will keep the muggers from mugging me. Uh, and there's no rights to be muggers. They have lots of other rights, obviously. Uh, so, so I would say that I'm an anarchist, both in the sense that my moral intuitions say that the fact that Congress votes something doesn't make it doesn't affect morality. And that as an economist, my guess is that I think there's a good chance that you can have an attractive society with no government. Uh, but you can easily enough imagine somebody who believed one of those and didn't believe the others. You could imagine someone who had no moral objection to government at all, just thought it was a mistake. Uh, as one could imagine, somebody who is morally opposed to government but thinks we can't do without it. So obviously, there are a number of moving parts 
you've mentioned at least just two that motivate your adoption of anarcho-capitalism, but I'd like to try narrowing them down. So as you just indicated, there's obviously an ethical dimension in which you don't think anyone or thing has the right to dictate another person's behavior or infringe upon their rights. And then that's one. Then I think there's also a theoretical dimension, and you haven't said this yet, but a free market is simpler than an engineered market. And I'm wondering if it's safe to also say that there's a practical component in that you suspect a totally free market would do better, whatever that means, than alternatives. One of the one of the arguments that I've been making for a long time is if you consider the tension between the anarchist and the limited government libertarian, that one of the problems the limited government libertarian has is that he agrees that governments are very bad at producing things, that if the government makes the cars, they're likely to be expensive and not work very well. And if the government runs the whole food system, you may have famines. Uh, But he relies on the government to produce law and law enforcement. And as anybody who has been to law school or has had much experience with knows, laws are not simple. That is, it's easy to stand at a distance, say, here's, you know, the three rules that run the world. But then you, when you actually get into applying them, determining, you know, what, what evidence, what level of evidence does it take to convict somebody of a crime or of a tort? What should the punishment be? You can, <clears throat> it's a very, very complicated system. Uh, and yet they are relying on this government that's incompetent to do hard, hard to do to do difficult things to do this very difficult thing in a very important area. So from that standpoint, it seems to me it should be clear to almost any limited government libertarian that if you could do away with government, if you could have a system in which law and law enforcement were produced on the market, that would be an improvement. And the question is, can you have it? Would such a system work? And then I argue that in the kind of anarchist system I've sketched uh, in my first book, uh, law is itself being produced on the market, that you have, as it were, a competitive market for laws. It's not, a, it's, it's different in, in a number of important ways from ordinary markets, but that nonetheless, you have the same general tendency to produce a well-designed product, as it were, that you do in, 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 in other, other markets. And that would be the from my standpoint, the practical argument in favor of anarcho-capitalism over limited government libertarianism. Then if you're arguing people who aren't limited government libertarians, you could then use all of the standard pro-market arguments on why uh, government-run things work badly. Hmm. Law and law enforcement is a special case that deserves more attention, but it's definitely a, a common point that I think often goes unsubstantiated that government is bad at making things, so to speak. And I was wondering if there are any particularly poignant examples of this that come to mind to make it more concrete. Well, I mean, Ukraine famine, the famine at the time of the Great Leap Forward, uh, U.S. Post Office doesn't do all that well. Uh, U.S. Post Office survived only because it made it illegal to compete with it back in the 19th century. Uh, Maybe we should stick with the U.S. Post Office. So I don't, I don't follow the USPS very well. I know that a lot of my mail gets lost. So maybe that is uh, well, it loses it loses money. It required a subsidy. Uh, as far as I know, UPS and FedEx don't require any subsidy. 
uh, it has a monopoly of first class mail. It's not, it's legal for the UPS and FedEx and anybody else to deliver packages, but not letters. Uh, and even with that monopoly, it's apparently going broke, but it's not like I'm an expert on the post office, but, but I think you can observe in lots of, <laughs> if you, if you look at the economy of the Soviet Union or of China, uh, back when it was still a, a socialist society, uh, which maybe sliding back to now, I'm not sure, uh, that they seem to do very badly that, uh, you know, one of the, there's this fascinating book by, by Ronald Coase, his final book on how China went capitalist. And it's clear that sort of part, part of what happens when Mao dies is that the other important people can finally go abroad and look at the rest of the world. And here they have what they believe is the world's best economic system. And they're dirt poor compared to everybody else. And that is a puzzle, which ultimately gets resolved by abandoning the economic system. Well, they don't say they're doing that. Uh, so uh, in that sense, it seems to me there's quite a lot of evidence that governments don't do very well. Uh, public schools are very expensive, uh, and they seem generally to, well, private schools, most of which spend much less per student, nonetheless manage to attract students. Uh, so even though they, the, the private stone school is spending less and what it spends is coming from the parents, which is a, a re an advantage of the public school, which has got it as tax money. Uh, and nonetheless, the private schools can compete. So it seems to me that it's a pretty common observation that most government runs things don't work very well. And I'm, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions if you have a organization that's run by a smart enthusiast, uh, that one of the problems I think you have in practice is that some smart enthusiast figures out a way of doing something, of solving a problem, of, of, of getting, uh, getting kids who are on welfare educated or something. And he does it and it works. And then the government says, great, this is a great idea. Let's hire a thousand people to do a thousand of these. And none of those thousand people are enthusiasts and none of them are very, are, are especially smart at doing this and it flops. Uh, and, uh, when the same thing happens on the market, the smart enthusiast starts a company and maybe other people imitate them, but they have to imitate them with their own money. Uh, and if they're not as good, they, they go out of business. Uh, anyway. I, uh, I, I didn't know that private schools pay less per student, but, now that the, I think about what's it. going on is that people think of private schools as prep schools. The prep schools are very expensive, but they are a tiny fraction of the top private school market. So if you look at average private school, the it depends on the state, but I think the public schools are probably typically spending something like eleven to fifteen thousand dollars per student per year, uh, if you include everything. Uh, Maybe more if you include their, the, the, the value of the land they're sitting on, which, and, and the buildings they have, which have been given to them and which they don't have to pay rent on, unlike a private school. Uh, but the ordinary private schools, I, I, I've seen the numbers. I don't remember them, but I think probably the expenditures got half as much on average. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, I just, I suppose though that I have heard that this is part of the argument for a charter school system. And, well, depends on what, to what degree the charter school has to compete for, for students and to what degree it's getting subsidized. The standard charter schools are also getting a tax money. Uh, mm -hmm. The 
No, I think there's an argument for there are various ways in which you can get something more like a market within a government institution so that you could say the simplest ways you say in the public school system that kids can go to any school they like and the money follows the kids. And in that situation, the individual, the individual public schools have to compete with each other if they want to get any income. Uh, now it gets better if you will now allow private people to also make schools and have the same money to them. And then you have a voucher system. Uh, but even without, even if without the private schools, you can to some degree set up com competitive institutions in the, in, in, in government activity, but it's, it's hard to do it very well. The other thing I was going to say is that it had never occurred to me that the USP, the USPS has a monopoly on first class mail, which now that I think about it also just strikes me as totally artificial and totally bizarre. It, that it's that would called be the, the private express statutes. And the private express, the story, I'm not sure it's right, but I think it is, is that they were passed in the 19th century when Lysander Spooner started the American Letter Mail Company, uh, was delivering mail, I think, on a much more limited way than a modern post office at a considerably lower price than the post office. And it was all right until they put in a bid to the U.S. government to deliver their mail. And at that point, they passed the private express statutes to put him out of business. Now, I don't swear that's right. Lysander Spooner was a 19th century anarchist, so one is especially sympathetic to him. Uh, he wrote this wonderful short book called No Treason, the, 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 the Constitution of No Authority, in which he's saying, well, look, you know, when did I sign this contract that I'm supposed to be bound by? Uh, but in any case, uh, but but certainly it's certainly the case that the private express statutes were passed in the 19th century and they do prevent other people from carrying first class mail. Uh, I don't I think I, I think the story about Lysander Spooner's rule is, role in it is correct, but I don't swear it is. I'm not a 19th century historian. Hmm. Well, returning to our main thread and this third criterion beyond ethical and theoretical that I mentioned, so practical, your faith that, practically speaking, an anarcho-capitalist society would fare better than alternatives. I think this raises a, a broader question that we should talk about, which is just what would be the empirical mark of success that we would use to judge alternatives if we were going to pit, uh, hypothetically, communism versus anarcho-capitalism and so on? Communism is making it too easy. So We've done that experiment. If you pick yeah, communism yeah. against capitalism, we have a very simple measure, and that is that the uh, guards on the Berlin Wall are facing East Germany, not West Germany. That is to say, the simple the simple measure uh, is uh, where people want to move. So, if you imagine not competing with communism, which is easy, but competing with an ordinary mixed economy, if you imagine the U.S. going anarcho-capitalist and Canada not. If after a while you observed that there were few Americans who wanted to migrate to Canada and lots of Canadians who wanted to migrate to America, that would be pretty good evidence that it was working. Okay. So it's, it's maybe a general human flourishing, but I wonder if we could, if we could pick out the actual metrics or parameters that might uh, result in people wanting to move somewhere just to make it more specific, something that can be tested. I guess you could obviously test this with a survey. But, but you can but, see where you could you could watch the flows of people. Mm -hmm. If the Canadians aren't letting people in and the Americans are letting people in uh, and the Canadians have people who want to come and the, have few people who want to come. Sorry, if the Canadians are not letting people out 
and the Americans are, uh, as in the East Germany, West Germany case, uh, that would tell you pretty well. Uh, so it seems to me that where people want to go is a better summary than a single measure like income, uh, which is a little tricky because how do you compare the money being used in the different places and life expectancy? That might be of some value if you actually had the data, but it'll take you a while before you know uh, the, but I haven't done the experiment. That is to say, uh, I know of stateless societies in the past and they weren't obviously less successful than the societies with governments that were coexisted with them, but it, not like we have good statistics for the 10th century Iceland or, or uh, Comanche in the, in the 19th century to take two examples of state. Well, Iceland is semi-stateless, but anyway, was. I suppose, I suppose my, my hang up is just that the idea of using desirability of living as your measure is that it doesn't seem to tell us what in particular we're expecting from the success of a given economic political philosophy. What we're expecting just, from the success of it is that it will be a society people want to live in. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess then maybe Look, you could imagine, you could imagine that the more successful society has lower income because people really like leisure and lots of them are sort of ascetics who don't have very many material tastes, but boy, do they enjoy it. That could still be a more successful society. A little harder to expect to imagine the more successful society having a shorter life expectancy, but it's not impossible if you imagine that the less successful society is one which feels very strongly about keeping people alive in the hospital for the last possible moment, even if they're miserable. Uh, and spending lots of the societal resources on that, it might have a higher life expectancy. And of course, if the if one of the societies has more women than men, uh, and that'll give it a longer life expectancy because women live a couple of years longer than men do. Hmm. Well, maybe then the point is that what constitutes a successful society is an issue for psychology that you're not interested in getting into rather than one that can be broken down into economic issues. I, I'm an economist. I believe in revealed preference. How people act, which society they want to be in is the appropriate objective test. Okay. No, I, I mean, that's a, I think that's a, a fair philosophical point that I just hadn't considered. So it's kind of difficult to wrap my mind around, but no, interesting. But you, 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 you were asking earlier where my moral beliefs came from, and I don't know if it's worth going into that or not. Oh, sure. Would you like to now? I, I think I saw it was at the end of your, it was at the end of the book. Or I'm an I'm an intuitionist. Yeah, Isaiah uh, Berlin. And, and you can well the the, the person. I, it's an argument I lost with Isaiah Berlin, but I don't know enough about what his views are to know how nearly what I ended up with was his only that's what I ended up with after losing an argument with him. Uh, but Michael Humer is a professional philosopher and a libertarian who actually has a book on intuitionism. So if people are curious, but it's basically the idea that just as I can see things in the outside world, I can so perceive moral truths as can everybody that there is a set of moral facts out there, but they're not a, phys not a non-physical thing, uh, just as the mathematics is a non-physical thing, uh, that human beings have some imperfect ability to perceive those moral truths, that they 
build moral theories on top of their perceptions, just as we build physical theories on top of our perceptions. That just as in the case of physical theories, even if we're all seeing the same thing, we may come to very different conclusions about the overall pattern. Uh, and that, that's the basic position. I'm not sure it's right, but I can't, I haven't found any more satisfactory basis for, for moral beliefs. Are you religious at all? And yeah, and your background is in physics. Are you a physicalist or a materialist? I mean, it doesn't sound that way. What I, what I mean by that is if you think all things are physical or material, but evidently if I you think know. that they're... I don't know. That is, first, I don't know what counts as the thing. Are all true statements statements about physical things? Well, I'm not at all sure that all of the theorems of mathematics are statements about physical things. Uh, the, I, I haven't spent a lot of time on philosophy, and when I read philosophers, I only occasionally am impressed by them. Uh, I generally, my view is that the fact that Rawls is taken seriously is a reason not to take modern political philosophy seriously because his most famous accomplishment is complete nonsense. He basically took an argument that Harsanyi made and Harsanyi drew the correct logical conclusion from it. And Rawls said, I don't like that conclusion, so I'll wave my hands and change it and, and get a conclusion I like. And that strikes me as the sort of thing that one shouldn't take seriously in intellectual activities. On the other hand, I occasionally read a philosopher who seems to me to have neat and interesting ideas and have thought about things. Uh, but it's not as if I spend a lot of time thinking about philosophy. Well, could we go in, if, if you don't mind, what is the Rawls, Rawls? Rawls hasn't come up that much on the show, and I'm wondering what the Rawlsian argument is that you find so meaningless. Yes, the, the basic idea, which, which Harsanyi had like 20 years or something before Rawls, is to imagine that you are in an initial situation where you do not know what role in society you will hold. So you think of yourself as we're going to choose a society with some set of social rules and I will then be randomly put into it. And the question is, how would you decide what the rules are that you want in that situation? And Harsanyi's answer was, fortunately, this guy called Johnny von Neumann has solved this problem that von Neumann showed that you can define utility functions in such a way that the utility of a lottery is the expected value of the outcomes, of the utility of the outcomes. So that, well, he says, you're imagining a lottery. This is a situation where you have, you know, one chance in a hundred million of being any of the hundred million people in the society. So therefore, whatever society maximizes average utility is the one you would choose. Now, he isn't necessarily correct. I don't know that the initial setup is correct. But he's correctly drawing the conclusion from that initial setup. Rawls didn't like that. So Rawls said, oh, no, you don't know what the probabilities are. You, And he said, if you don't know what the probabilities are, you will, make, you will be an ultimate pessimist. You will assume that whatever the, whatever the society set up, I will be the worst off person is. And therefore, the rule you will follow is those set of social rules that maximize the welfare of the worst off people, person. That was what he got famous for. And it's, it's complete nonsense. He never offered any reason why anybody would act that way. Uh, you have 
decisions much short of that that people engage in and people do not act as if they're infinitely risk averse. They don't act as if they assume that if they're facing a gamble, they will always lose, always get the worst outcome. Anyway, that is a, it's a diversion, but I'm, I'm irritated by bad intellectual work. And, and uh, it seems to me now Rawls may have done other good things. It's not like I'm an expert on Rawls, but I read the original book that, that uh, made him famous. And, and I reached that conclusion and I've seen no reason to change it since. Hmm. Well then, and I've had, I've, 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 I should say, I've had some exchanges with some libertarian political philosophers, part of what call themselves the bleeding heart libertarians, and they aren't willing to agree with Rawls, but they speak positively of him, and I have not been able to get any of them to, in fact, defend uh, what is his most famous uh, conclusion, uh, and. Anyway, I've, I had a fairly extended online exchange with a couple of them a few years ago. Well, then, returning to something you said earlier at the, at the beginning of our conversation, you said that government by an act of Congress doesn't make right and wrong. So you've thrown that out. Your philosophy is that there are just facts about what is right and wrong, and we have some way of grasping them, but you don't want to take a stance on how that is. That's right. We, 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 that we imperfectly perceive them. And we try to build moral systems out of what we perceive, but the perception is much, just as you don't perceive Newton's laws of physics, you perceive objects moving around. Well, you don't perceive uh, the rules of morality. What you perceive is that person acted badly. That was wrong. Uh, and I think at that level, most people most of the time agree, though not perfectly, uh, which is in a sense the natural test of whether or not there's an objective reality out there. Doesn't prove there is. There is the alternative explanation that we've all been brainwashed into the same beliefs by our society or that we've all been brainwashed by our genes, that the moral beliefs we have exist because those were the beliefs that resulted in behavior that led to reproductive success. Those are competing explanations. But none of those explanations answer my question, which is what should I do? Whereas my explanation does give an answer to that. And given that, I prefer mine among the alternatives. Hmm. So if you see a cat being kicked, you're just viscerally confronted with the wrongness of this act. That's basically it. I, I think, though, that you could also take, as opposed to saying that there are objective moral facts, you could go with a more pragmatic position and say that maybe, okay, maybe because of our genes, we are programmed, if you want to use that word, to see wrongness when a cat is being kicked. But you could also acknowledge that if Martians landed, they wouldn't see that wrongness. But that doesn't really matter for you because what's going to tell you what to do is how you are programmed. But, so then it's the, also, but, but then the question is, should I obey my programming? After all, human beings uh, act massively in violation of what their genes want them to do. That the use of birth control, spending your time and effort on pets instead of babies, those are all things in which we are not acting to maximize our reproductive success uh, due to the fact that the genes did not do a perfect job of controlling us. There's, there's this wonderful metaphor uh, by uh, the author of The Selfish Gene. 
Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. Richard Dawkins. Uh, he says that there are science fiction stories where humans make robots and the robots rebel and take over the humans. It's happened. We're the robots. The genes designed us for their purpose of reproductive success. However, part of the what turned out to work very well for reproductive success was intelligence. But intelligence from the standpoint of the genes has this downside that it lets the organism recognize the conflict of interest between what he what he wants to do and what his genes want him to do, and then choose not to act as the genes want. So, so it's not like you have to obey your genes. And if it's really the case that the only reason I think stealing is wrong is because my genes or my society programmed into it, then if only I could figure out a way of defeating that program, a way of persuading myself that stealing was right, I'd be better off. Of course, I have to be careful and only steal when I wouldn't get caught. But so, so I don't think any, I don't think either of the genetic or the social explanations answers the question, what should I do? It only answers the question, why do I mistakenly think I should do things? Whereas the, uh, intuitionist one, what we're perceiving is what you should do. What we're perceiving are moral facts. So now you can say it's, it's a biased process to pick the explanation that gives the answer I want, but given several possible explanations, the fact that one of them answers that question and the others don't seems to me a reason for preferring it. Yeah, no, I can see why positing the existence of moral facts can be more comforting, not to use that word negatively, when asking the question of what you should do. But for me, at least, it's sufficiently troubling that I have no understanding of what could make a moral fact true. Going back so, to the question of whether one believes everything is physical reality, is consciousness physical reality? I have, well, I would say that everything, from my perspective, everything is physical. Now, whether can I, I can explain it, the answer to that is totally no, but I guess it's an act of faith at this point. Yeah, that is, it seems to me that one of the biggest holes in my picture of reality is that the most fundamental fact I know is that I am conscious. That's Kogater or Gosum. I think, therefore, I am. Uh, and yet, I don't understand it. Uh and, you know, it's a little bit comforting because since I'm an atheist, I don't believe in life after death on religious grounds. But after all, if the consciousness is something they don't understand, there's at least a possibility that it survives the physical death, though I don't think it's the way to gamble. Uh, so, but anyway, uh, but that in a sense is, is, is some argument against physical being a full account that I don't think we have any way of understanding how there's somebody looking out through my eyes, as it were. I'm not going to, I can explain you, right? You could just be a robot, but I know directly that I'm conscious. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, physics has been tremendously successful and there seems like a road to understanding consciousness. I mean, the program of identifying, systematizing, exploring neural correlates of consciousness, but I don't see an analogous way of figuring out by looking at a cat being kicked, what makes it wrong. I can, I can figure out what's making the, the pain circuits fire in the cat, but wrongness just seems like a predicate that doesn't apply to physical things. I can believe in intuitionism without understanding what is in the physical, what, what is the, the basis for, for morality. Similarly, for most of the history of mankind, arguably still, 
people believed in facts of physical reality. They believed that this cup was here and, and this nose is here and so forth without an explanation of why. Right. And why did they believe it? Because they observed it. They have senses. The senses mostly give consistent results. Uh, we therefore, our best guess is that, that, that the reality we perceive is reasonably close to the actual reality, maybe not perfectly close, uh, and so forth. So, so I don't think that the fact that one doesn't have an equivalent of physics theory to explain morality is an adequate reason not to believe in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's, just a matter of disagreement. I would like to get back to the anarchism. And I'm wondering, I'm, we haven't talked about too many of the specifics yet, but I'm wondering if there are, and I, I think the answer is yes, but if there are no functions whatsoever that you think a government should be trusted to perform. I mean, this is a difficult idea to swallow as it's the, the way I would put it is that there are some things that a government could do better than the alternatives, but that I know of no way of setting up a government which will do only those things and do them in the way it ought to do and not do other and worse things as well. So as an economist, you, there are various categories of market failure, uh, public goods and externalities and so forth. But if you think for a moment about the political system as itself a market, if you think about the political system not as a benevolent uh, despot doing good, but as the result of voters and politicians and lobbyists and all the rest of it, you rapidly realize that market failure, which is a relatively rare pattern in the private market, is the norm in the public market. That is to say, if you think about externalities uh, or public goods, uh, which are in a sense the same issue, uh, if I if I play music in my house, there might be a very faint externality because somebody outside likes the music. And in principle, I may not play music quite as much as I should or as much music as I should because I'm not a, taking account of his benefit as well as my benefit in the music. But it's a pretty small effect. Most of the effect of playing music in me is in my house is to me. On the other hand, if I uh, lobby a government to pass a tariff, 99.999999% of the cost of that tariff is borne by people other than me. Uh, probably 90%, if, if, if you think of me as the president of GM or something, uh, probably 90% of the benefit of the tariff goes to people other than me. That is to say, other auto companies which are benefited by the tariff, uh, auto workers, and so forth. So there's no good reason to think that the fact that it's in my interest to do it means it's in our interest to do it. Whereas in the market, sort of standard economic theory tells you most of the time what's in my interest is in our interest in, the, in, the, in that sense. So if the government, if the mechanism for controlling government is shot through with the kind of problems that occasionally make the mechanism for controlling private markets not work, it's pretty risky to give government powers to, to do things. Can we start off on the charitable side of where you began? So what do you think that government might actually do better? Even though you said you couldn't trust a government to do only these things, what might it do better? That's interesting. In principle, 
dealing with air pollution could be an example. Uh, subsidizing uh, fundamental research could be an example. Uh, I'm somewhat skeptical about the latter. Uh, part of the reason I, one of the several reasons I left physics was that it appeared to me that it was being enormously overinvested in. That is to say that what, that because at the time when I uh, was a graduate student in physics, everybody knew that physics was the important thing for the government to subsidize. After all, we just developed the atomic bomb, hadn't we? Uh, and the result, I think, was that you had like 10 times as many very smart people going into physics as, as, as physics actually used, which meant that nine of the 10 people were people who weren't doing, going other places that would be more useful. So that's a case where the government's subsidizing basic research, but it may well do more damage than, than, than good. But it could be, it could do good because the basic research is hard to propertize. Uh, there is actually an English academic who at least claims to have done research on the effect of government subsidy, concluding that it does not do any good in the sense that his claim is that there are a number, this is a talk I heard a long time ago, but uh, name is Margolis. Uh, and I think it's right. Pretty sure it is. Uh, anyway, that his claim is that there are a number of cases where some area of science suddenly got a whole lot of government subsidy. And that if you look at them, you do not get a higher rate of progress when that happens. Uh, and whether, whether he's right, I don't know. It's, you know, it's something I heard in a talk and might, might be true. But again, air pollution, I don't think there's really an adequate, uh, private market for doing it. Uh, if we only had one country in the world and global climate change was really a problem, then a government could deal with it. The problem there, aside from the question of whether it's really a problem, is that in a world of many governments, public, dealing with climate change is still a public good, even at the level of governments, because each government that does it is providing benefits mostly for other governments. Uh, but I think those are the examples of things where you could imagine. Uh, oh, and I suppose national defense, defending against other governments is something where it's plausible that a government could do it better. But again, the problem is that in practice, governments that are given the power to do that then go out and start wars. Uh, so uh, anyway, the but those would be things. But the problem is, the problem in general is that we don't have either a way of constraining governments to only do the handful of things they would be better at, or if they do them, to actually get them to do them better. Because let, let me take particularly extreme example. And that is that one of the things that the U.S. government does in order to deal with climate change is a massive policy, which has two effects. It has no effect at all on climate change, it turns out, although it was claimed to when it was instituted. And it makes much more expensive the chief food of 200 million people, most of them poor. That's the biofuels program. The U.S. is the world's largest producer of maize, what Americans call corn. The U.S. converts something like 13 or 14 percent of the world's supply of maize into alcohol. And maize is the chief food stuff for about 200 million people, mostly in poor countries. Well, that's a massive contribution to world hunger. And it doesn't even reduce CO2, it turns out. So that's a case where there is a theoretical argument for the government subsidizing things in order to keep down CO2. It's not as good an argument as people think because 
we don't really know what the net effects of climate change are going to be, but people think they do. And if it was clear that they were negative and large, there would then be a plausible argument for government doing that. But it ends up doing something that, that, that doesn't achieve that objective, does a whole lot of damage in the world. Why does it do it? Because it pushes up the cost of uh, up the price of, of maize and that gets you votes from farmers. Uh, as Al Gore, to his credit, has, has admitted. I think that the, this example of air pollution and climate change is quite interesting, especially because it's existentially uh, large and looming. But well, it is. That's, that, 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 that's a popular lie. If you actually read the IPCC reports or if you read Nordhaus, both of which I think are too pessimistic, Nordhaus's estimate is that if we do nothing at all about climate change, by the end of the century, the world will be a few percent poorer. That's not an existential threat. The existential stuff is because it makes good news stories. Uh, the real argument is that it will make us somewhat worse off. But that's that's a long digression. And I should say, I don't agree with that real argument. I don't think we know whether it makes us better or worse off. I think that, that as far as I can tell, climate change has both positive and negative effects. Both of them are quite uncertain. We're talking about effects spread over a long period of time and the future is very uncertain. And therefore, I don't think we know whether the negative effects are bigger than the positive ones. Uh, although lots of people believe they do. But even if we did, my point is, uh, if you look at the respectable sources of information, such as the IPCC or Nordhaus, uh, the scale of the costs is much less than the rhetoric implies. Mm -hmm. It is a sufficiently complicated issue and one that I sufficiently know, or I know sufficiently little about, that I try not to make pronouncements about global warming. But something that does seem safe to say to me is that the risks are sufficiently non-negligible that it's something that has to be taken very seriously. Uh, I think that's a safe thing to say. And what I was going to say, the reason that I brought that up is uh, I recently spoke with Deirdre McCloskey, who okay, that you that you know, and she, we talked about classical liberalism and climate change came up in the context of something that the free market might not be well suited to handle. And Deirdre's response was that she thinks it is best to be left to the free market. She thinks that on the one hand, we were, I think we, as we were talking about it, we placed classical liberalism on a spectrum and we were talking about uh, the market engineers maybe on the left. So socialists, something like that. And then conservatives on the right, conservatives don't want to make any changes. The socialists want to make a lot of changes, but her thoughts were that the, the, and maybe I'm wrong. So, but I, I think this is what I'm recalling. The conservatives just are sticking their head in the sand. the, liberals, not her sort of liberals, think they know much more than they do and she doesn't trust them. But her position is that the class, classical liberal is optimistic about the future and that and trusts that rather than let government intervene, the best bet is to believe that engineers will solve the problem in the future if it there becomes... Are, there are two different kinds of solutions. The one for which that's right is adaptation. That is to say, 
changing your crop variety in order to adjust to the fact that the temperature is a degree higher than it used to be is a private good for the individual farmer. It is in the interest of people who produce seeds to try to breed varieties that will be optimized against the changed environment. So there you can expect engineering to do it. But for, uh, re for, for, for keeping the climate change from happening, it's not clear that it's in the private interest of anybody to do that. Uh, now, it might turn out if government gives lots of money to people who do that, that some clever person will find out a good way of doing it. But I don't trust the government to decide who to give money to. As I say, the government currently has a, a, a massive policy that is almost certainly killing several million people a year. That's the biofuels. I don't have numbers on it, obviously. But if you've got 200 million people and you're making their chief food stuff twice as expensive as it used to be, and they're poor people, it seems to me that's got to raise mortality rates noticeably. So it's not as if, you know, government action always does good things. So your position, and I'm inferring here, is that because we can't trust government to do only the things that it can do well, the best bet or what you would like to see if you were, I mean, you don't want to be king, but if you could snap your fingers and make these things happen, is that we wouldn't prevent global warming because you don't want a government to be interfering and you would end up relying on this second situation in which adaptation, as you put it, where engineers solve the problem in the future. That's right. Global warming might or might not happen very much, depending on sort of the accidents of technology. If it turns out that nuclear or thermonuclear or solar and wind plus battery become cheaper than fossil fuel, we will then produce much less CO2 and global warming will slow down and maybe eventually stop. Uh, CO2 doesn't have an infinite lifetime after all. Uh, so uh seen in the atmosphere doesn't co2 itself does uh and that is to say it, it it isn't radioactive it doesn't decay it's just that it gets put taken out of the atmosphere in various ways uh so uh so i'm not necessarily predicting that it will continue but i am saying that i do not think having the government try to make it stop is is a sensible strategy mm -hmm. yeah i should just say i i spoke with somebody else a few days ago. His name is Tim Palmer. He's a leading physicist and meteorologist at Oxford. And he was essentially echoing what you were saying in that we really don't know if climate change is going to happen. What he narrowed it down to is that we don't have enough understanding of clouds, really, and things could go one way or the other. But his position based on everything he knows is that it is something that should be taken seriously. That is my view is not that we don't know it's going to happen. I, we don't know what's going to happen a century from now, but I think we can be pretty, pretty confident that the CO2 concert concentration of the atmosphere will be higher five years from now than it is now. And that probably average temperatures will be a little higher five years from now. Although there's a lot of random noise in that signal. So they might not be, but if you go, 20 or 30 years, it would be surprising if te average temperature didn't go up a bit. On the other hand, you're talking about very small changes. That is the total global warming so far since about 1913, which is roughly when it started, is somewhat over one degree centigrade, less than two degrees centigrade. Uh, so it's a matter of 
you have to imagine that very small changes. The way I like to put it is that if you believe the high end of the IPCC estimates for the end of the century, by the end of the century, Minnesota will be as warm as Iowa is now. Well, Iowa manages pretty well. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, but that, that would be a, be a long discussion. But anyway, uh, but no, but I think that I, what strikes me is really as most uncertain. I mean, there's, there is some uncertainty about the rate of temperature increase. But I think the uh, I think more in more uncertainty about the effects on climate in other ways about the question of whether you get more flooding and such and drought, and most uncertainty about the effect of whatever happens on people. That uh, I don't think we know whether uh, raising temperature by two degrees results in more people dying or fewer people dying because it results in more heat waves but also fewer cold waves basically. And currently, many more people die of cold than of heat. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I'm I'm glad that we've spoken about just some things that government might do better because I think it's important to acknowledge, as it would otherwise be difficult to take the serious the thesis seriously. If, for instance, you suggested well, air, that the free air, market air, air pollution is probably a better example. That is, that there are lots of problems the government are dealing with climate change. Climate change, I think of as something where, under some imaginable circumstances, it would make sense for government to deal with it. Just not the circumstances that exist. On the other hand, air pollution. There are certainly forms of air pollution which pretty clearly do real damage, uh, and ways in which government can deal with them, which are not all that difficult. So I would not be surprised if you could somehow make a government which only, if you could somehow make a very short list of things the government was allowed to do, that it, that it would have good results. It's just I don't know any way of making and enforcing such a list. Mm -hmm. Well, now, though, for some things that might at least facially seem that they shouldn't function well in an anarchic world, but that you have argued can function. So first, the first thing that comes to mind is police. How would police function in a world without government? Yeah, well, the, the system which I sketched in machinery is one in which individuals are customers of firms that enforce their rights and settle their disputes. Uh, and every pair of such firms who have customers who might run into each other agree in advance on a private court, an arbitrator whose verdicts they will accept. So you then have a network uh, system in which uh, if somebody robs me, I call my rights enforcement agency and they send a cop to try to catch him. And if they catch him and he denies having robbed me and his rights enforcement, he has a rights enforcement agency of his own, which is not the same as mine, probably. Uh, then the two rights enforcement agencies have agreed in advance that they will accept the verdict of the court that they, the private arbitrator, the court that they've agreed on in advance. And if he loses the case, his rights enforcement agency won't defend him. Mine will force him to pay me compensation or whatever, whatever the legal rule is. So it's a system in which the police are private. You do realize that England didn't have any police until about 1820. I did not. Yeah. Robert Peel invented the English police force in the early 19th century. And in the 18th century, uh, if you basically, uh, criminal law was privately prosecuted, the enforcement of the verdict was public. So if somebody stole your horse, it was up to you to find out who did it, to bring the, to then report it to a constable who could arrest him for you, 
uh, to bring the evidence to the court and have him prosecuted. And he gets hang- he gets convicted, he gets hanged or, or transported to uh, the New World or something. Uh, and there were people in the business of, of doing this for you. There were so-called thief takers who were in the business of catching thieves. And to some extent, that was motivated by rewards. That varied a lot according to the particular crime and where it happened. And to some extent, by rewards from the victim who would pay. And there were various, I mean, it was more complicated than this system. But really, you didn't have anything that we would recognize as a police force until, until Peel invented it. And the only cases where the government was itself, where you had equivalent of a district attorney, where your government was in charge of prosecuting, were crimes that were actually against the government. So if you stole something from the government, they would hire a lawyer to, to go after you. Or, uh, but if they if you stole something from me, that was an interest to the government only at the point when I had tracked you down, I or somebody working for you. Anyway, that's... Uh, my most recent book is called Legal Systems Very Different from Ours. And it has a very, one of the very long chapters is on 18th century England because it's a fascinating system. It's not clear when you start thinking about it, how it worked, uh, or why it was set up the way it was set up. Uh, it was a legal system where all serious crimes were in theory capital. Uh, the only exception being, uh, manslaughter. Uh, but, on the other hand, of the people who were charged with such capital crimes, maybe one in eight got executed. And of the people who convicted, maybe 40%, we don't know, but something like that. Uh, so it was a weird and interesting system. Uh, it's a fun book. It, it, you, you can get it on Kindle or you can read a very late draft on my webpage if you'd rather. Uh, but anyway, but, but, but in any case, what I'm describing is a system uh, where you would have police who were employees of private firms and the private firms are being paid by their customers to provide police protection to them. No, the hard problem is not police. The hard problem is national defense. Well, before we get to national defense, though, I can imagine what you've just sketched out as, okay, England pre-1820 is not Malibu, but I can imagine this working in Malibu where people have the funding to hire this private enforcement, but I don't see how this. Who could do you think is paying for the police now? Is 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 it coming by money coming falling out of the sky? No, but if you look at assuming- if you look if you look at, at government expenditures, the expenditure for court and police is a tiny fraction of the total expenditure of governments. Nonetheless, all of that expenditure is being paid for by people. So if you're presently being taxed ten thousand a year. Uh, of which $100 a year is spent on police. Surely you can afford $100 a year for private police when you're no longer being taxed. Right. But so I'm imagining a place like the south side of Chicago, where there is very little income, but there's a inordinate amount of crime. And I don't think that it is tax money coming from those districts that is paying for the policing there. Maybe I'm wrong, and you can tell me that. That is and- to say, I the answer is I do not know what the distribution of tax revenue for his expenditure is, but I would be very surprised if the tax revenue from the south side of Chicago was not larger than the expenditures on police force in the south side of Chicago. 
because given that the expenditure of, of the state and federal government is probably 50 times the expended, the fraction of it, I don't know the numbers, but it's, it's a large multiple of the numbers of the amount spent on police enforcement. So even if the south side of Chicago only pays for half of its expenses, since its expenses are not mostly police and, and uh, courts, it's still going to be paying much less than, paying much more than, than, than police and courts would cost. Okay, so your point is that my intuition, due to my lack of knowledge of the you financing, can, you, you, of you can look up the numbers pretty easily. And I, you know, I looked them up a long time ago, so I'm out of date. But, but, but police and courts are not a major factor. I'm not. Could look it up right now if you felt like it. The look up the budget of the state of Illinois. But you think my intuition is wrong, and this is something that could be implemented even in poor communities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then let's move you on. You will notice to at present that it is the poor that the poor communities are typically worse off in the things provided by government. All right, yes, government has in effect a monopoly of two things: schooling and law enforcement. And the worst schools are in the poor areas, and the highest crime rates are in the poor areas. Anyway. That's interesting. I imagine, though, that there are grocery stores, would... grocery stores in you know, on the part of the south side you're thinking of, which is not the part where I lived on lived in. It's a little bit farther south. Well, except my when I was a graduate student, actually, I was on the wrong side of the midway for a year or two. Uh, but the grocery stores there are probably a little more expensive than the grocery stores in the good areas because it's more expensive to run a store when there's a high crime rate and they probably have somewhat lower quality. But nonetheless, you're getting more or less, you know, it, 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 it's not a huge difference between what's available on the private market for grocery stores or buying cars or things of that sort uh, between the poor and the rich areas. Uh, rich people buy, you know, nicer food and, and better cars. Uh, but there's a very large difference between, as I say, in law enforcement and in schools. But continue. Well, actually, before we move on to police forces, a different sort of crime occurs to me right now. Who would – it doesn't seem to me like the private market would – or the free market would be able to protect against insider trading. It seems like if insider trading, for instance, or white collar crime would just become totally rampant because the people who might be policing that would have no incentive to police it. No, because it, 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 the appropriate solution, it's not clear that insider trading is a bad thing, but the appropriate approach is that part of the contract that a corporate, part of the way a corporation is set up does or does not permit its insiders to trade. And if the rule is that uh, your employees are not allowed to trade on the stock on inside knowledge, then the it is in the interest of the company having made that rule to enforce it. They can enforce it either by firing people who do it or if they want to go further by having a contract with the employee where the employee agrees to forfeit $10,000 if he doesn't do that and so forth and so on. There's no particular reason. Contract law is, is, is enforceable in an anarchist system. Uh, so the, the, what, what you won't be able to control probably is insider trading by people who have no connection to the corporation. Uh, because the, the, the barber who overheard a conversation, uh, among insiders can't. You, you probably won't be able to get. But no, the insider trading has the advantage of getting information to the market faster. 
because the insiders are the ones who have it. And when they trade, that affects the market. It has the disadvantage, mainly the disadvantage that it means that the gains from change do not go to the ordinary stockholder, uh, but go to the particular, at least some of them go to the, the people who have the inside information. But yeah, no, I, I also, my guess is you won't be able to enforce laws against uh, drug use and prostitution, but then I don't think those laws should be enforced. So that's a plus, not a minus from my standpoint. Or gambling. That, that in general, what's basically going on is that what the law... The laws are being produced in a market. The, mar the, the people producing the laws, the rights, the, 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 the arbitration agencies are selling them to the rights enforcement agencies. From the rights enforcement agencies, from their standpoint, part of the product they're selling their customers is what laws they'll be judged under. So that means that a law which benefits one person by $100 and hurts by another person by $200 if they're both both customers of the same agency, it will probably not pay the, the agency to accept that law or the arbitration agency to offer it. And even if they're customers of different agencies, since the two agencies have to agree on what uh, arbitration agency they will accept, you would expect that you would tend to get roughly economically efficient law. Uh, that is law which maximizes the value to all the people affected. Uh, there are some exceptions, but that would be the, the normal pattern. And then uh, you, I think it, is, it will be the case that it is very rarely, it is very rare that I get more by violating your rights than you lose by my violating your rights. And therefore, it will be very rare to have a case where it's economically efficient to have a rule that lets you violate rights or lets anybody violate rights. On the other hand, there the value to a heroin addict of being able to eat, able to consume heroin is very high. The value to other people, uh, as long as the laws are being enforced with regard to theft and such, of not letting him use heroin is very low, especially since heroin is going to be cheap if it's not illegal, and therefore there will be less reason to steal in order to get it. Uh, so I think there's going to be very little market pressure to ban victimless crimes, to ban dry, say, drug use, gambling, and prostitution would be probably the three big examples of, of victimless crime in our system. I have, <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that insider trading isn't a bad thing. And that's, that's good because it's an interesting opinion to take. Um, are things like the Enron scandal also totally just unenforceable, undetectable? I don't know. I, I just don't know enough about the facts of those. Uh, that I do not know whether present government mechanisms for trying to get accurate information on on companies do good or harm. I don't know. It's not a subject I know very much about. And but I guess notice that th this isn't. This isn't the sort of thing that's inherently hard for markets to solve in the sense that in order for me to get you to invest in my company, I've got to persuade you that it's worth doing. So any terms about public information on the company that, that investors really care about, it's going to be in my interest to agree to uh, and let you enforce uh, in order to get your investment. That doesn't mean I can't fool you, obviously, that, you know, uh, there are various ways in which people can con other people, but 
you don't have an equivalent. In the case of air pollution, I don't need your consent in order to pollute your air. But I do need your consent in order to swindle you via bad investment. That means that makes it a problem that it is much easier to deal with by voluntary mechanisms. Now, I, I, I we could talk about the military, but I think that just given the, the time we have left, we might shift here I, to some- I, I, have, I have two chapters, one in the first edition, one in the third edition, sketching ways you might be able to fund the military. But I think that's the hardest problem because it's the public good. Because if I spend money on protecting the country from being invaded by whoever might invade us, Russia, I suppose, uh, that the benefit gets shared by everybody else in the country. But we don't have to discuss that. As I say, you can look at the people can look at the chapters. The third edition of Machinery is webbed on my webpage, so people can read it for free if they want. Okay, great. And I will, of course, be mentioning all of that in the introduction. But the question that I had is, do we have any good indications from history that this sort of comprehensive anarcho-capitalist system would be successful? We don't have anything that is equivalent to what it would be in a modern developed society. We have multiple examples of societies in which uh, law enforcement was in effect, in effect private. Uh, and I, just, I have a chapter in the legal systems very different book on what I call feud law. Uh, I should say, I should warn you, the word feud and the word feudal have no connection. They're etymologically distinct and conceptually distinct. The basic rule of feud law is that if you wrong me, uh, I demand you compensate me. And if you don't demand, if you don't compensate me, I harm you. And then there are a variety of requirements to make that a working legal system. And I run through in the chapter the problems that it has to, first problem it has to solve is some reason why it works when you've really wronged me and doesn't work when I only pretend you wronged me so that it's actual law enforcement rather than extortion. The second problem is some way of committing me so that when you say, if you harm me, I'll harm you back, I still go ahead and do it. And the third way is some way of protecting people who don't have the assets to to do force themselves. And I discuss in the chapter the ways in which various real societies over the last thousand years or so uh, have, have solved those problems. Imperfectly, of course, all human societies are imperfect. Mm -hmm. When I spoke with Deirdre, we talked about equality of permission under the law, equality of opportunity, equality of outcome. And these are a number of closely related ideas, but maybe I should start with wealth inequality. Do you not see a totally unfettered free market as increasing wealth inequality to an inordinate degree, or is this something that you just accept? The, no, I can't predict whether it, it might increase it, it might decrease it, that you know, wealth inequality in our society, a lot of it is driven by government programs that you have, you know, restrictions for entry to various professions, which push up the wages of the people doing those professions. Uh, you have the one of the sort of striking facts that nobody seems to realize. If you look at a graph of poverty rate in the U.S., starting basically at the end of World War II, which is where we have the data, 
from the end of World War II to about the point when the war of poverty got fully funded and manned, poverty rate is falling fairly sharply. From then on, it's been roughly constant. Roughly, I mean, obviously it goes up and down with economic conditions, but uh, the theory of the war on poverty uh, was that it was going to make people no longer poor, that it was going to get people permanently out of poverty. And what it, it was entirely unable to do that in the various ways it tried. And what it ended up doing instead was making poverty somewhat less unpleasant by giving people money and things of that sort. And that's where it stayed. Uh, so my guess is that if you had a free market, you would have many fewer restrictions on people making money, including poor people. That, did, for example, there's no particular reason why being a barber should require a license. And yet in, I think, most cities it does. And the license requires things like 200 hours of classes on cutting hair. Uh, well, being a barber is the sort of thing that a poor person who's reasonably competent can do. But it's illegal. Uh, and there are lots of other things in which that's the case. The My favorite, the only organization I actually normally donate money to is the Institute for Justice. And one of the things they do is to sue to, to knock down restrictions of that sort. But they have not knocked down anything like all of them. Uh, so, so there are various ways in which the government keeps people poor and makes people rich. There are various ways in which government keeps people from being rich. So I really can't predict whether you would end up with more or less income inequality. But I don't really regard income inequality as, as, as a bad thing. I regard poverty as a bad thing. But if, if the change is that the poor get 10% richer and the rich get 50% richer, that's a net gain, not a net loss. Hmm. So it, Adopting anarcho-capitalism entails accepting that some people may, and I stress this, you don't want to predict, but I'll, I'll stress this word may, end up totally poor, homeless, healthy, and uneducated. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but people do end up, quite a lot of people in our present society end up poor, uneducated, and homeless. That's the, true. The number of homeless, are... the, the homeless is to a significant degree a government creation because of the fact that very cheap housing is illegal. Uh, if you read Orwell, for example, on da down and out in, in London and Paris, uh, or Paris and London, I'm not sure how he orders it. He describes how very poor people lived in London when he was a pretty poor person. Uh, and it was basically in buildings where you had multiple people per room sleeping. Those would be illegal in probably any state, any, any city in the U.S. And they were cheap. Some of them were charitable. Some of them were, I think he actually said that he thought that he enjoyed the ones that were not charitable better than the ones that were charitable because the ones that were charitable were religious and were trying to, to, to reform you as well as to house you. Uh, uh, and there are all sorts of restrictions on housing construction in the U.S. at present. So I think that you would have almost certainly less homelessness. You would have the people who are now homeless. Well, some of them are homeless because they're uh, crazy people who, 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 you know, couldn't manage a home anyway. But the people who are homeless because they cannot afford a place, a roof over their heads uh, would have homes, but they would be very poor homes. They would be, you know, Look, in, in, in the Soviet Union under Stalin, in, in, in Moscow, you had people living a family to a room. That's a home. It's a very cheap home. Uh, and you would have something like that at the very low end. Uh, 
so I had that problem. But you would certainly have poor people, and you will surely have uneducated people, but then we do now. And you would have rich people, and we have that now as well. But in the current case, there are nonetheless I mean, government-funded shelters and support. And I'm asking if anarcho-capitalism accepts that there could be people like this, homeless and unhealthy, without any supports, if there are not enough people with the necessary funding willing to support them. Correct. That is, I think that that if uh, my guess is that a rich society, you will that. The, there is enough emotional feeling about people not starving that I think, in, and, and food is pretty cheap, that in the kind of society I imagine, I think it is very unlikely that anybody would be would 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 be starving because they couldn't get any food because there would be people who thought, wouldn't it be neat? Our church or our club or something will, I mean, it happens at the present. My, uh, my wife's, uh, every a month or two, my wife bakes a whole bunch of bread uh, for a, project for the homeless that's run by local churches. Uh, and that doesn't depend on the government. And I expect that would still happen, probably happen more if the government weren't purportedly solving the problem. Uh, but but it's certainly logically possible. I mean, it, it is logically possible that if you have a have no government, that some people will starve to death. It is logically possible that if you have a government, some people will starve to death. As it happens, all of the cases we know of of large numbers of people starving with were places with very strong governments, right? I mean, we've got, we have three of them. Soviet Union, where Holdemar uh, starved a couple of million Ukrainians to death. This may be one reason why Ukraine is not really fond of being Russian. Uh, you have uh, China, where the Great Leap Forward Current estimates are about 30 million people dying, although there's some dispute about that. Uh, and uh, you have Cambodia, which holds the record for the number, for its percentage of the population, uh, where in a small, I don't know what the total numbers are, but a very large number of people died. Those are all cases where the government was in charge of handling food. Uh, and you don't observe that in the, uh, I guess the only case I can think of in, in the last couple of centuries within a basically capitalist system would be the Irish potato famine. And that was largely dealt with by Irish leaving Ireland and coming to America, which was a sensible thing to do under the circumstances. But that was a case where it wasn't because people were poor, it was because there had been a disease that wiped out a large part of the main food that the people relied on. The two biggest problems that we've already that struck my mind we already discussed and and those are global warming slash pollution and then total wealth inequality but maybe this is then it is worth bringing back uh the military into things and not necessarily even the, the military but humans are naturally hierarchical and power seeking and i wonder if you don't think that in an anarchic world, groups like the mafia or the church or gangs would immediately attempt to consolidate powers. Or maybe you just see this as another logical possibility, but not a pressing one. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any particular reason to expect they would succeed in that, that after all, the this is if, if you really want to do that sort of thing, the first thing you do is to bribe the police. Uh, the 
or and, and the judges. There's a book, uh, the last testament of Lucky Luciano. Luciano was a major uh, organized crime figure back a ways, and the book claims to have been told to a newspaper man by Luciano when he was in retirement in Italy. And I believe it, but you can't prove whether it's real. It could have been invented by the guy. But one of the bits that I, that struck me was that at one point he's running a criminal firm and there are a group of maybe four or five criminal firms and they're all independent, except they have a pooled fund for buying judges because that's something where there's an economy of scale. So the present system, uh, the system that, that, that I advocate, if a rights enforcement agency or a court system is doing a bad job of uh, protecting people's rights, then you would expect that those people will go to a different seller and it will lose money. And therefore it has an incentive to try not to try to make sure that people aren't taking bribes. There is no comparable mechanism in our system. Well, then the last sort of major cluster of topics I want to talk about, we'll talk about were more practical and generally, how would this be achieved? Because it seems like, if anything, the United States and other Western countries are becoming increasingly socialist and government is growing larger. Is the only possible full scale violent uh, revolution no. or how I do think, you see I think violent revolution is probably a mistake from a libertarian standpoint because a large part of the reason people want a government is to protect themselves against violence. So if there's lots of violence going around, they're likely to be willing to tolerate more government, not less. No, I think that what you, what you want to do is to gradually reduce the size of government. And there are a whole bunch of different ways in which you get people to do that. One of them is what we're doing at the moment, that is trying to spread ideas using the internet or writing books or uh, teaching classes or whatever, so that you can try to persuade, try to change. I like to say that the, polit the democratic political system is like a mi an old-fashioned microscope with two knobs, a fine control and a coarse control. And the fine control is lobbying, basically. The course control is democratic voting by ignorant voters uh, because there's no incentive for the voter to actually have the information he needs to do a good job voting since he's not the one who, who bears most of the cost if he makes the mistake. Uh, and therefore, one way of changing things is to change what ignorant people know. Uh, so putting out ideas. I actually had a Substack post about this uh, maybe a month or two ago, uh, called, I think, How to Save the World, pretentious title, but, but discussing ways, and it can be done for good or bad reasons. I gave an example of a particular case of somebody putting out ideas into the public where it happened to be a lie, but it was a well-tailored lie and lots of people believed it. Uh, and uh, I try to have ways in which I can embody a, an argument or an idea in a way that is simple and memorable. And I have a standard example of that, which is growing Hondas. The fact that you can produce, we have two different technologies of producing automobiles. You can build them in Detroit or you can grow them in Iowa. And the way you grow cars in Iowa is to grow the raw material they're made out of, which is called wheat, put it on a ship, send the ship into the Pacific and it comes back with Hondas on it. That's a, technology for producing cars just as much as the other one is. And what that tells you is that what an auto tariff is doing is not protecting American 
auto workers from the competition of Japanese auto workers. It's protecting American auto workers from the competition of, of American farmers. So that's an example of an easy argument to follow, which if enough people understand it, will make it politically a little more expensive to pass tariffs. And that kind, trying to do that kind of thing is one approach. A different approach is trying to create institutions that replace government. So, for example, if somebody could come up with a really inexpensive technology for private schooling, which ought to be possible now that we've got the Internet and computers, at the point when you can get a, as good an education of your kids for $200 a year as the public school can for 12000 there's going to be a big shift. Well, there will be a shift towards homeschooling and similar arrangements. Not perfect because the uh, the public schools are largely doing babysitting anyway, and you need a substitute for that as well. But my point is just that the more you can pr produce adequate private substitutes, the less the pressure for people to want the government. Uh, and you can, in various ways, try to spread ideas. You might succeed, you might fail. I mean, the socialists managed to do it pretty successfully a century plus ago, uh, and maybe we can do it too. Uh, but no, I don't, I think a revolution is not a very likely method. Uh, you do know, by the way, that at the moment, the leading presidential candidate in Argentina is not only a libertarian, but describes himself as an anarcho-capitalist. It's quite fascinating. We'll see what happens. He's an economist too. Well, talking about the spread of ideas, just to close, is your motivation in thinking, talking, and writing about this for the past many decades based on your interest in the theory and an obsession with that? Or are you really just more deeply invested in seeing change in politics and economics like with this Argentine? I'm in favor of, ch of change, but I think my main incentive is that it's fun. That thinking through ideas is something I enjoy doing. And there's a certain sense in which I feel that sort of the way I pay for the amount of space I take up in the universe is by creating new and good ideas. Uh, so, no, I hope it'll improve things, but I wouldn't have said that that's my main motive. And I, I've never been a professional libertarian. I'm a professional economist. Uh, so from that standpoint, a good deal of my work... Uh, my specialty for, oh, I guess the last 30 years or so of my career was economic analysis of law. And that has some relevance to libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism, but mostly it's a matter of trying to solve a puzzle, of trying to say, if you wanted to make a economically efficient legal rule, what would it be? And there's a whole literature on that. Uh, and I've... I've got one book, which is my book, Law's Order, is essentially my contribution to that literature. Uh, and I do other things for fun. Yes, you're an anachronist, I saw. I'd never never heard of this before. Maybe That's our listeners funny haven't because there's it. an SCA group uh, in, in your area, at least has been, probably still is. Society for Creative Anachronism is people who do medieval and Renaissance stuff for fun, basically. And... Uh, I and my wife and daughter are very much involved with researching medieval recipes, for example. We've got a, my wife and I have a cookbook you can get on 
you actually can, you can get it, download it from my webpage, but you can also buy it on, on Amazon, uh, which has about 300 recipes from basically, uh, I guess the earliest source is probably, uh, fifth century or so. And the latest is some early 17th century recipes. And for each of the recipes, we have the original and then how we do it because originals, medieval recipes tend to leave out a lot of details that you need, uh, such as temperatures, quantities, temperatures, and times. Uh, and, but I do other things. I make a certain amount of historical jewelry. Uh, I've just been working on a tent for, uh, based on some early tents, uh, various other things. And that's been an entertaining hobby. And I do storytelling, which, which sit around a campfire telling medieval stories. Well, I am a, an identified foodie. So you've piqued my interest. What are some of these recipes? Say there, there are a lot of them. Uh, let me see. Well, there's 300 let, of them, but yes, let me just, let me describe out? one of the very, very simple things that we, that we make in this very popular is gingerbread. Uh, only it's not what we call gingerbread at all because it's not baked. What you do is you boil honey, you stir into it breadcrumbs, you add, uh, spices, specifically ginger, long pepper and saunders. Saunders is ground sandalwood, sandalwood root used as a food coloring mainly in the Middle Ages. Uh, you knead it smooth as soon as it gets cool enough so you can handle it. You then put it out. I, I, I generally have wooden discs I've cut that I can spread it onto because that makes it easy to cut it. Uh, and you plant it with cloves. Uh, stick cloves in it uh, ornamentally if you can, which I mostly try to do. Uh, and you then let it sit and the, it'll last for a very long time if you don't eat it. Uh, and small kids like it. And so do most grownups. It's a sort of a candy kind of thing. Not what we, the texture is more like fudge than it is like what we call gingerbread, but it's a honey and ginger and some extent long pepper flavored fudge. So that would be one example. Let me give you an entirely different example of something we're also fond of. Uh, I'm going to give a couple of those. Uh, there's a recipe which I got from an Icelandic medical miscellany, but it turns out that that's one of several daughter manuscripts from a lost original. And the person who researched them thinks the original was Southern European, even though Iceland is where it ended up. But it's a very simple recipe. Uh, you cut a chicken in half. You mix up a flour and water dough essentially a bread dough, but not a raised bread dough. You roll, you, you divide the dough in half, roll out each half. You then wrap the half chicken in sage, bacon, and bread dough, and bake it in the oven like bread. And it comes out quite tasty, the, especially the dough underneath has gotten soaked with uh, chicken fat and bacon fat, and it's very, very yummy. Third example, another thing we make fairly often, uh, Islamic. Uh, the, the first two I gave are both European, but we've got a lot of Islamic things and I've been doing more of those recently because some very good cookbooks got translated. Uh, and there's something called rishta. And you take lamb, lentils, uh, chickpeas, and uh, half a stick of cinnamon. 
and you simmer them. You then mold, you, you, you knead a dough from flour and water, roll it out thin and cut it into noodles. You dump the noodles into the simmering lamb, uh, lentils, chickpea, uh, liquid, uh, to cook the noodles and you then eat it. And let me give you one more example for a dessert, which I haven't given you. Well, gingerbread isn't really a dessert. It's a, it's a nibble. Uh, but I have several of what I think of as frying pan pastries, meaning that I can do them in a, in a frying pan over a campfire without an oven and yet get something which seems like a pastry. And one of them is Islamic. Uh, you make a very sticky semolina sourdough and you fry a pancake. Turn over the pancake, smear the cooked side with the sticky sourdough, turn over the pancake, smear the cooked side with the sticky sourdough, turn over the pancake. So when you're finished, you've got, in effect, 10 layers of pancakes, all of which were at one point on the surface and therefore all of which have been cooked, even though you don't have an oven in order to do a thick pastry. Uh, you then turn it up on its edge and roll it around like a wheel just to make sure you get any, any soft bits, any bits that didn't get properly cooked initially. You then punch, put it flat, punch holes in it with the handle of a wooden spoon and pour in melted butter and honey. Oh, wow. That one sounds particularly interesting. It's funny. I, I mean, as I'm listening to this, I was just thinking, we tend to think implicitly that we in the present are at the pinnacle, whether it's morality, physics, economic theory, to name some of the things we've talked about. But and the same goes for our cultural sophistication. But this pancake has been lost to time. But it isn't just that. If you, the very fact that places like India and China have cuisines that we like is evidence that economic development does not have a strong coalition, correlation with good cooking, right? India, India, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, had good food. India was a relatively primitive country and they didn't get the good food from the English. Uh, that would have been the worst place to look for it. Uh, but so, so anyway, so no, I think I don't see any particular evidence that the average quality of, obviously with quality of ingredients has improved because, you know, we, we've got good transportation and freezers and a bunch of other things. Uh, but I don't think that the quality of the recipes has improved. It's just a different, it's multiple different cuisines. It's medieval Islamic and English French, which is roughly one cuisine from about the 13th through the 15th century, and then starts changing somewhat in the 16th century and so forth. But in general, you find these recipes, even if they come from 800, a thousand years ago, still to be highly palatable. Mm. Yes. Uh, one of the interesting questions is many people mistakenly, many people believe, I think mistakenly, that medieval food was very overspiced. And if the, the, the standard story, which is obviously nonsense, is it was overspiced to hide the taste of rotten meat. And given that rotten meat gets you sick, and that spices were very expensive, and the meat was available alive on the hoof, that is a very implausible story. Next question is, is it overspiced? And when somebody tells you that story, you ask him how he knows. 
because most of the recipes, less true of the Islamic, most of the European recipes don't have quantities. So what you can see is that they use a different palette of spices than we do, uh, but not, uh, they use ginger, for example, in uh, some things that are not dessert kind of kinds of things. Uh, or cinnamon would be a better example, the fact that there was cinnamon in that, in the rishta that I described, uh, the noodle dish. Uh, and, and in fact, it turns out that, at, I don't know if it's the, really the origin of the belief, but one of the earliest things available was a book called Two Fifteenth Century Cookery Books, which was published by the Early English Text Society in the late 19th century. And the introduction to that has the comment that we can see that our ancestors had strong stomachs from the cinnamon soup on page X. You go to look at page X and it's not a recipe, it's a menu. So his evidence for the fact that they had strong stomachs was that they sometimes had cinnamon in their soup. And this tells us more about English 19th century cooking than it does about medieval cooking. Hmm. I, I think I had always just, I mean, I've never thought about this before, but I had always just assumed that food must have gotten better and it must have been bad a thousand years ago. But I imagine that it's less like physics where we've certainly gotten better at physics and more maybe like clothing fashion. I mean, fashion or has poetry, changed. Or literature. Or poetry. You know, Shakespeare was quite a long time ago, and yet people seem to think highly of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, technique, techniques have evolved since Shakespeare, just like cooking techniques or yeah, cooking techniques, music, whatever. But that doesn't mean that we're better now. We might have more tools available to us. Are, but are, are our current musicians better than Bach? Probably not. Yeah, I'm not a music person, but my impression is most people think not. The in terms of just technology, one of my one of my interests is jewelry. Uh, the Etruscans, this is pre-Roman, are making granulated jewelry, gold where the pattern is done with little tiny gold spheres arranged on it, with the granules one three hundredth of an inch across. They were doing that like 2,700 years ago, roughly. Do you wear a lot of jewelry or no, are you just I don't wear jewelry. It? I make jewelry for my wife and my daughter uh, and to show other people and occasionally give other people, but not very often. So you enjoy maybe the aesthetics, the craft and the history, but you don't want to wear it. Yeah, I don't. I don't wear jewelry, but yeah, no, I enjoy. First, I do lapidary work, for, mostly for the fun of it. That is cutting gemstones. Uh, and that's mostly just because they're very pretty and it's fun to, to see a, something come alive, as it were. Uh, but I also do fairly simple uh, constructions, uh, soldering and cutting and stuff with silver sheet and wire. And at least part of what I'm doing is trying to see if I can successfully reproduce medieval things uh, or something close to medieval things. And that's fun. And I uh, there's a annual... SCA, big SCA event held north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with about 10,000 people at it. I teach classes there and things like how to do medieval jewelry. Uh, Very cool. Well, I'm so glad that we, we finished the last 10 or 15 minutes on anachronism because I didn't know about it. And it seems like there are many dimensions of it. If you look on my webpage, there is a book my wife and I self-published called The Miscellany, which is 300 and some pages long also available from Amazon, but you can download a PDF from the webpage. 
Uh, and part of it is, is our recipes. And part of it is my SCA poetry and instructions on making a medieval pavilion and a whole bunch of other stuff of that sort. So you can get at least some feeling of the SCA, at least through my eyes, uh, from that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me on so many levels. It It was was really fun. fun. Uh, thank you. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Airhome. <laughs>